Oh, come on. Howdy. Okay. Hey, I am from Texas, so welcome to Grace. Uh, glad you're with us. If you have your Bible or maybe uh, grab a Bible in the pew back in front of you, turn with me to the little book called Amos. A-M-O-S. We're doing a series on the minor prophet called Amos. He's uh, minor only in length, but he's major in what he has to say. If you're using uh, the Pew Bible, that's the NIV. It's page uh, 746, Amos chapter 3. If you don't have access to either of those, the text should be up on our screen. We're in part four of our sermon series in the book of Amos, so I trust that uh, you're there or close to getting to Amos chapter 3. And uh, let's pray, and we'll dive right into our sermon this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the great privilege that it has been to be reminded that to live is Christ and to die is gain. To be reminded that it's not just persecution in Syria uh, that is normal, but it's normal to be persecuted as a Christian. In fact, your word says that anyone who wishes to live a godly life will suffer persecution. And here in the States, um, we suffer that in different ways in our lives than many of our brothers and sisters around the world, yet we do still. Father, help us to suffer well. Help us to endure well. Help us to be faithful to the gospel and to the testimony of Christ well. And we pray once again for our dear brothers and sisters, for their families uh, that are enduring much more than we. Father, strengthen them as, you, as only you can. Be the God of all comforts to them. We ask if it be your will that you would sovereignly put your angels around them to watch over them, to protect them, and to preserve their life. And yet, if that's not your will, and if you want them to uh, know what it means to be blessed are those who suffer persecution for the namesake, that they would do that well and give honor and glory to Christ, and that those who are doing the persecuting would see that spectacular testimony and consider and turn to Christ as a worthy Savior. Jesus, you are worthy of everything that we have. You're worthy of our life. You're worthy of our morality. You're worthy of our money, of our possessions, of everything that we have. Um, You are worthy of that, and may we be willing to give everything for the great joy of participating in the suffering of Christ. We ask it in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. 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 I would like to begin with a story this morning told by uh, former uh, Pastor Bill Hybels. In uh, a leadership magazine, he tells the story in a a synopsis kind of way of the life of a man by the name of Howard Hughes. Uh, There's a picture on the screen, hopefully behind me. Most of us are probably familiar with the man. Uh, There you see a picture of the before and after uh, Howard Hughes as a young man and uh, Howard Hughes as an old man. Hopefully we'll get that picture up there soon. Uh, But uh, he, he speaks of Howard Hughes and the life of Howard Hughes this way. Bill Heibel said this, All he ever really wanted in life was more. He wanted, there it is, he wanted more money. So he... Uh, He parlayed inherited wealth into a a billion-dollar pile of assets. He wanted more fame, so he broke into the Hollywood scene and soon became a a, a filmmaker and a star. He wanted more sensual pleasures, so he paid handsome sums to indulge his every sexual urge. He wanted more thrills, so he designed, built, and piloted the fastest aircraft in the world. He wanted more power, so he secretly dealt political favor so skillfully that two U.S. presidents became his bonds. All he ever wanted was more. He was absolutely convinced that more 
would bring him true satisfaction. Ultimately, Heibel writes, history shows otherwise. He concluded his life emaciated, colorless, sunken chest, fingernails and grotesque, inches-long corkscrews, rotting black teeth, tumors, innumerable needle marks from his drug addiction. Howard Hughes died believing the myth of more. He died a millionaire junkie, insane by all reasonable standards. This morning, I want us to take a look at a chart behind me. We're going to move sections in the book of Amos. For the last three weeks, we've been hearing the roar of judgment. We've seen God speak words of judgment against uh, seven surrounding nations and then against the nation of Israel itself, as you see in the upper left-hand side. We've seen the roar of judgment. Now, as we move into chapters 3 through 6, we're going to see the reasons for judgment. That is, Amos is going to list five reasons for the coming imminent judgment that is going to come upon God's people, the nation of Israel. And the first one we're going to look at today is found in chapter 3. So if you look at the chart, you see the five things. First one, the first thing that he talks about as he gets into listing the reason why God's people of old will receive judgment is what I would call materialism. Materialism. So what exactly is materialism? It has various definitions. So what do I mean by it? Well, the materialism that I'm talking about can be defined like this. It's a preoccupation with or an emphasis on material objects and comforts with a disinterest in or rejection of spiritual values. It's materialism. It's becoming preoccupied, seeking meaning and purpose and significance in life by gaining more objects, more comforts, and all the while dismissing the spiritual reality of life. The nation of Israel, like Howard Hughes, bought into the lie of the myth of more. God's message to Israel and to us today, his people here in the church, is simply this. If you're taking notes, jot this down. This is the the thrust of chapter 3. It's this. Privilege should produce responsibility. Privilege should produce responsibility, not selfish materialism. That is the message of Amos for God's people then and for God's people today. Three main points as we look at chapter 3, uh, what we see is this message of privilege producing responsibility and not materialism kind of unfolds in three movements, in three sections in, in Amos chapter 3. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, we're going to see a privilege pronounced. That is, we're going to see God talk about the incredible privilege that it was to be a part of the nation that was his special nation. There's a privilege pronounced. Secondly, we're going to see a principle portrayed, that is, in verses 3 through 10, he's going to illustrate the imminency of the coming judgment by using a simple principle of cause and effect that we see in events in everyday life. Thirdly, we'll see a punishment prescribed. What is it going to be like for God's people because of their materialism? So let's jump into it. Let's open up our Bibles, chapter 3 of Amos, and let's read verses 1 and 2 as we see Amos speak of a privilege pronounced. Verse 1 reads this way. 
Hear this word, people of Israel. The word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family that I brought up out of Egypt. Verse 2. You only, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your sins. What I want to point out very uh, simply is this. Notice the language of privilege in verses 1 and 2. Did you notice the language of privilege? He says, you only, you only, Israel, you only, God's people, have I chosen of all the families of the earth. And he speaks of the call of Abraham to bless Abraham and to make a great nation of him and to to be a blessing to all the world, which ultimately was fulfilled in the coming person of Jesus Christ from the very lineage of Abraham himself. He says, you only, Israel, have, have I chosen. You only have this privileged position of being my special nation. He reminds them of how he rescued them from four centuries of slavery. He reminds them of the exodus. He reminds them of his faithfulness to them and how privileged of a nation they are. He reminds them that he parted the Red Sea for them. He reminds them that that he killed the Egyptian army that were on their heels. He, He reminds them that he was the one who provided for them. He led them in the wilderness. He was the one who gave them their land, who gave them the very soil that they stood on. He gave them a plentiful land, a land of blessing. He was the one who defeated the people that lived in that land and gave it to them by using this imagery of being the lone chosen family. He reminds them of the incredible privilege of being a child of God. And then he says, Therefore, I will punish you for all of your sins. It's because you have had such privilege. It's because I've done all of these things for you, and yet you've turned from me. And because of that, I will punish you for all of your sins. They had gotten wrapped up in their privileged position. Dr. Uh, Bernard Shaw Jr., he was a doctor, and uh, he, in fact, he was a hospital president, and he has this story told about him that I'd like to, to share with you. It runs this way. Dr. Brown once worked in a hospital where a patient had knocked over a cup of water, which of course spilled on the floor beside the patient's bed. The patient was afraid that he might slip on the water if he got out of bed, so he asked a nurse's aide if she could simply mop it up. What the patient didn't know was that the hospital policy said that small spills were the responsibility of the nurse's aide. However, larger spills were to be mopped up by the housekeeping group. Well, the nurse's aide looked at the spill and decided that it was a large one. And so she called the housekeeping department. Of course, the housekeeper arrived and declared that the spill was a small one. And, of course, an argument followed and ensued as to whether the spill was large or whether it was small. Whose responsibility was it to clean up this large or small spill? Well, after a while, the exasperated patient uh, was tired of listening. And so he took a pitcher of water at his night table and poured the whole thing on the ground. And he said, is that big enough to decide? 
And of course it was. And that ended the argument. You know, I think we too, like Israel, can be guilty of getting too wrapped up in the privilege of things. Israel, like that nurse and the housekeeper, had gotten wrapped up in the privilege rather than the responsibility that comes alongside with the privilege. Israel, what we are going to find out as we work our way through Amos, is that as God's people, they had become so wrapped up with the privilege of being a child of God, and the benefits that came alongside with it of the land and of uh, having a a blessing and having all sorts of material things. We learned a few weeks ago that this was the height, essentially, of the wealth of the nation at this point. Maybe Solomon outgained them, but at this point, Israel was on cloud nine. They had everything they needed, all sorts of material blessings. And we're going to see as we work our way through that they thought that they were untouchable. They thought that We are God's people. Nothing bad can ever happen to us. We are God's people. We deserve to be blessed. We are God's people. We deserve, and they list all of the things that they deserved, all of the privileges that they enjoyed, but they forgot that alongside the covenant, not only was what God would bless them with, but how they needed to obey God. That's the way the Mosaic Covenant worked. If you obey me, I will do X, Y, and Z. But if you don't obey me, then you can expect curses, and they had gotten wrapped up with privilege rather than responsibility. Friends, this can happen to us as well, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So what we see from these first couple verses is the first half of our message statement. Privilege should produce responsibility, and with Israel, it did not. We move from a privilege pronounced to a principle portrayed. If you look in your Bibles with me in verses 3 through 10, Amos is going to illustrate and he's going to apply the principle found in nature of cause and effect. We're all familiar with how this works. It's a simple concept, this idea of cause and effect. A few few days ago, maybe last week, Uh, It was a school night, and we were just enjoying family time at home, and uh, the kids were looking for something to do. And so Asher said, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to do a science experiment. And so we said, okay, maybe we can do a simple science experiment. So I got on Google, and I Googled, you know, youth, children's, science experiments, or something like that, right? Uh, Because I'm not a science guy. I don't, you know, I don't want to blow up the house or anything like that. So I just, I Googled it. What can we do that's simple? You know, a simple science experiment. And the one that we found had, had to do with making an egg float in water. Now, I'm no scientist. I don't know how things work. But I do know if you get a regular cup of water and you put an egg in it, what happens? It sinks, right? Uh, but what you do is if you put water and then you put lots and lots and lots of salt in that water, and then if you put the egg, what happens? It floats. Do it at home, kids. It's fun and easy and safe, right? Um, so we did this simple cause and effect science experiment, and uh, we saw the principle. If you do this, then you get this. Well, Amos is going to use this simple principle in life, and he's going to use it to speak of the imminent judgment that's coming upon his people. He's going to ask seven questions. So if you like counting, count. He's going to ask seven questions, and each of the obvious answers to these questions is no. No. He's going to ask a question, and as a hearer, God's people are going to say no, no. And what that's going to do, it's going to progressively lead to the inevitability of judgment. You'll see what I mean. Let's read verses 3 through 8 as he illustrates this principle of cause and effect, starting in verse 3. 
Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? And the answer is what, church? No. Does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? And the answer is no. Does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? The answer, no. Does a bird swoop down to a trap on the ground when there is no bait? And the answer is no. Does a trap spring up from the ground if it has not caught anything? The answer is no. When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? And the answer is no. And he hits it on the head with this last question. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? And the answer is what? No. The answer is no. Verse 8, the lion has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? The section ends as Amos uses courtroom imagery. He's going to call for two witnesses for two nations surrounding the nation of Israel, the nation of Philistia and Egypt, to testify. He's calling them to be witnesses and to come, out, come up on Mount Samaria and to look at the city where God's people live. It's as if he's saying, come on, people. Come on, nations. Come and look at God's people. Come, come and see and testify to what's going on here. Because what was going on there was selfish violence done in the pursuit of the myth of more. Verses 9 through 10. Proclaim to the fortress of Ashdod, that is a Syrian city in the nation of Philistia, and to the fortress of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountain of Samaria, which is the capital city of, of Israel. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who stores up, notice, in their fortresses what they have plundered and what they have looted. So, what's going on here? One commentator describes the scene this way. Instead of peace and order, Panic and terrifying disintegration of the rule of law prevailed in the land. Instead of justice, violence and oppression was rampant. By means of threats and exploitation, the rich had amassed private fortunes, hoarding the results of plunder and loot in their homes. So what do we see? The principle was portrayed, and we see in Amos 3-10, through 10, the second the second part of our message statement, privilege should produce responsibility, but what had it produced in Israel? It had produced materialism, and in particular, it had produced selfishness. It had produced selfish materialism. So we've seen this principle pronounced. We've seen this uh, principle portrayed, and he ends in verses 11 through 15 with a punishment prescribed. He's showed us that though they are the most privileged people, they have turned that privilege into selfishness, just wanting more and more and more for themselves. Finally, he prescribes a punishment in verses 11 through 15. And the way he does it is he uses three uh, images, three pictures, three vivid images of the pending judgment that ultimately happened in the year 722, when the nation of Assyria came in and took about 22,000 Israelites and exiled them into all sorts of different 
places. So let's see the first image. It's found in verse 11. And it's the image of an invading army. Verse 11 reads this way. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. So here's the irony. They had stockpiled loot, more wealth, more things, the, uh, the accumulation of their selfishness, they stored in what? Their fortified cities, right? They stored them in their fortresses. But what's going to happen? Their fortresses are going to be plundered, and their strongholds are going to be pulled down. There's an invading army. The second image is found in verse 12. It's the, it's the image of a, of a lamb that has been torn to shreds by a predator. Notice the, the vivid imagery in verse 12. This is what the Lord says, as a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued only with only the head of a bed and a piece of fabric from a couch. What Amos is saying is that not many people will be left not many people will remain at home. Uh, this is a vivid imagery. I recall um, a, an image like this. Uh, one sad day when we awoke as children, we lived uh, out kind of in the country. We had several acres, and uh, there were coyotes that kind of roamed uh, to the back of our backyard and the acres behind it. And so we were always uh, careful to put our dogs inside. Uh, however, one night, I don't know if somebody forgot or the dog got out. I don't know what happened. But uh, this image of only finding a leg bone or an ear, well, let's just say that's similar to what we found of our dog. It's a, it's a, it's a hard image. There's not much left. And he says, that's how the nation is going to be. Starting in verse 13 through 15, we see the third image. And the third image is simply an image of utter destruction. It reads this way. Hear this and testify against the descendants of Jacob declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, on the day I will punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel, the city there in the nation of Israel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. First of all, he speaks of the horns of an altar. What's, what's going on here? Well, when you read in the Bible, you'll find out that when the northern kingdom of Israel split from the southern kingdom, the kings in the north basically said, we don't want our, our people to go down south to worship where they're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. So we're going we're gonna to make a, a calf idol, a golden calf idol, and it's going to be to the worship of the Lord, of Yahweh, but it's an idolatrous place of worship, and that continued uh, throughout the divided kingdom. And so this is what he's talking about. These, these uh, horns of this idolatrous idol were going to be destroyed. And here's the irony. The Old Testament said that if you uh, accidentally uh, committed manslaughter, you murdered someone on accident, that you could flee to these set cities. And what you would do is you would go, and you would go to the altar and grab onto the horns 
of the altar, and it was a symbol, a place of refuge until justice could be served. It was a way of protecting you from the family just coming out and murdering you. So what God is, is saying is, listen, these horns, this place of asylum that you associate with, with asylum and with refuge is going to be destroyed, right? There will be no refuge for you. Growing up, I'm sure you've probably played the game of tag. It's a simple game. We all know how it works. I'm it. I chase after you. I tag you, and you're it, and then I run from you, and that's how the game is played, right? We've all played it. Uh, It's a fun game. Very good. Um, So uh, the way that tag sometimes is played is that there is a home base, right? You with me? So you're playing tag, and what's the idea of home base? If I go to this couch, if I go to this room, if I go to this tree, and if I touch it, then what? Can you be tagged? The answer is no, right? It's home base. You're safe. But if you wander away, well, then it's fair game, right? Well, this is the image, right, of these golden calves. It was kind of like home base. Israel thought, We've, we, can, we can be set free. We can find asylum. And God is saying, no, no, that is not going to be the case. Notice the second image What kind of wealth did these people have? Notice, how many homes did they own? One? Shake your head no. Two? Shake your head yes. They owned two homes. Uh, I don't know about you. I only own one home. Some of us don't own any homes. But even in our culture today, if you own two homes, then what would you think of that person? Are they well off? Shake your head, yes. Generally speaking, if you own two homes, you're probably pretty decent off, right? Um, In those days, it was just like that, but even more so. Only kings and and high, high high-ranking family people, kings might have a summer home and a winter home. You might have a home in Florida and a home in Colorado, right? You might have two homes if you were a king, okay? But in Israel, the wealthy, the more common folks... They had two homes. They had accumulated such wealth from their abuse of the system, from their selfishness, and from their taking advantage of the poor, that they had two homes. Now, how did they decorate these homes? Did you catch it? Did you catch it? Let's, let's look back in verses 13 through 15. Verse 15 in particular. The houses adorned with what? Ivory. So they decorated and adorned their houses with ivory. Where do we get ivory from, folks? Elephants. And where do elephants live? Africa. Do they live in Israel? Shake your head. No, there are no elephants in Israel, right? And so these folks were very wealthy. They were importing the best, the best way to decorate their homes. So they had two homes, a, a summer house, a winter house, and they were plush. And God says, I'm going to destroy that because you didn't get it rightly. It shows us and it completes our message statement. Privilege should produce responsibility, not selfishness and not materialism. So let's, let's begin to think as we close our time today with what, what this message that Amos gave to God's people over a thousand years ago. How does that how does that impact our lives today? What, is, what does this mean? How do we apply this principle that privilege in our lives should produce responsibility rather than selfish materialism. Number one, privilege should produce responsibility spiritually and materially. So let's think about this. Spiritually, 
Great privilege should produce great responsibility. Like the nation of Israel, we too as the church are chosen people. We too have been ransomed by the blood of a lamb from slavery, just like they were, to sin, to self, to the devil, and even to death. We too are in a privileged position as God's people. And yet this privilege of being a Christian comes with responsibility. It comes with the responsibility to pursue obedience, to cooperate with the Holy Spirit that indwells us to pursue a life of holiness and godliness. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, has this great privilege of salvation led to responsibility in my life, in your spiritual life? Because listen, Israel thought that being chosen where God's people meant that they could do whatever they wanted, that they could live however they wanted and still enjoy the benefits of being God's chosen people. And God is saying, listen, this privilege should, re- should lead to spiritual responsibility. They were spiritually blessed, but they were spiritually not doing what they were supposed to do. So how about you? I think we can be tempted to think that salvation in Christ is simply just a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? It's just a get-out-of-hell-free. You've played Monopoly, you pass go, you collect $200, right? And then there's that little card, get-out-of-jail-free. Oh, that's a good one, right? I'm going to stick that in the back pocket. And we think when we become Christians, man, there's my card. I'm just going to stick it back in my back pocket, get-out-of-hell-free, and then I can do whatever I want. And the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, speak against that kind of thinking. Receiving Christ as our Savior must lead to walking with Christ as our Lord. And if we don't walk with Christ as our Lord, then we need to seriously consider if Christ is our Savior. And so, spiritual privilege should lead to spiritual responsibility. Secondly, physical privilege should lead to physical responsibility. You could say material, you could say monetarily. Like the nation of Israel in that day, we here in America are blessed financially. We are blessed materially. We have nice homes, nice, nice cars, nice clothes. We have shelter. We have jobs. We have um, just all sorts of the opportunity for all sorts of good things here. We live maybe in the most prosperous nation in the world. And Israel on that day, they were living it up. And yet they thought, God is just giving all this stuff for me. Oh, wonderful. Thanks. It's all for me. All for me. All for me. And they forgot that material privilege should produce material responsibility. So is it in your life? Is it in my life? We should, we should be responsible for the blessings that God has given us. We should meet our own current needs. We should meet our future needs. We should give to those in need. We should give back to God and his local church. We should live modestly as Christians. And there's wiggle room here. And yet, this is not the norm, I fear, in our lives for the most part. We don't pursue living modestly with the blessings God given us. What do we do? We We just want the biggest and the best, and we want to maximize what God has given us. And this is blatantly obvious when we look at things like the the housing market crash and the amount of debt that we accumulate. Like those in Israel, we forget about God, and we become obsessed with our money and our possessions and meeting this standard of living, and we pursue that oftentimes at great cost 
whether it be to our reputation, our family, our morality, or even our obligations to church. We can get wrapped up in our jobs, our bank accounts, our luxuries, and our needs, and I put that in quotation mark, and we forget that those things come with responsibility as well. So I want to close with a story. A well-known pastor down in Texas by the name of George Truitt, if you're familiar with Baylor University, the seminary, at least in part, is named after him. It's a Baptist seminary, George Truitt. He was the longtime pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, which is a very prominent church. And the story goes this way. He was once invited to a dinner party in the home of a very wealthy man in his congregation. After the meal, the host led him to a place where they had a really good view of the surrounding area. He pointed to the oil wells that punctuated the landscape, and he boasted, 25 years ago, I had nothing. Now, as far as you can see, look, all of it's mine. Looking in the opposite direction at his sprawling fields of grain, he said, that's all mine. Then turning eastward, he looked at the huge herds of cattle, and he bragged, they're all mine too. Then pointing to the west, there was a beautiful forest, and he exclaimed, that is all mine as well. He paused, and he expected Pastor Truett to comment on maybe his great success or something like that. However, George Truett placed one hand on the man's shoulder, and he pointed towards heaven, and he said this, how much do you have in that direction? And the man hung his head and confessed, you know, I've never thought of that. It's a good question. How much do we have in that direction? You will have much if the privilege that comes into your life produces responsibility rather than selfishness and materialism. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning that we can have together to sit under your word. Father, thank you for this word that you've spoken to your people many years ago, and yet the truths of it still ring true in our hearts. We are just like them. We want more. We buy into the myth of, of more, and we find out that it doesn't satisfy. Father, may we be wealthy in heaven. May we store up those treasures and use responsibly the resources you've given us. Father, the most tremendous blessing of all is that you have sent your son Jesus to live a life of perfect obedience that we need to be right with you and yet could never perform. You sent your own son not only to live for us, but to die on a wooden, rugged, old, bloody cross, to bear the weight of our sin, to take our hell, in a sense, our punishment for us that we owe to you and rightly deserve. And he rose from the dead, defeating Satan, defeating sin, defeating death itself. And he went into heaven, preparing the way for us, showing us the road, declaring that we too can be new people and have eternal life. This is the greatest blessing of all, the greatest spiritual privilege of all. If there's a man or woman, a young boy or a girl, and they've never trusted in Christ, they've never come to have their sins forgiven, to be reconciled with the Holy God, to be born again, to be filled with the Spirit, to have a new heart, new desires, new outlook on life, and new spiritual life that begins now and will last into eternity. 
then may they bow the knee now and accept Jesus as their Savior and then begin to follow them as their Lord, inviting him to come into their heart and their life. Father, thank you for these blessings that you've given us. May we not be guilty of selfish materialism, but may we use them responsibly. In the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. See you next week. Amen.